Hello, everybody. I am Nicole, for those of you who don't know, and my wonderful husband, Alan, and my three children are um, getting an early night in because we just flew in from Houston and they were all very tired. So you'll meet them all tomorrow, but I just wanted to let you know, for those of you who don't know us, um, my husband works at Southern. He's teaching at the university there, and we've been married for seven years now, seven wonderful years. And for those of you who aren't married yet, don't think that it's the key to all happiness, but it's definitely wonderful when the Lord blesses. Um, the presentation tonight is called Crawling in Love. And I thought, you know, some of my dear friends here may think that that means that you need to go very slowly. That, that's not the point <laughs> with the crawling thing. But I do remember thinking when Alan and I were dating, I had this distinct feeling that I wasn't falling in love with this guy. I was really crawling in love. I was making the decisions to marry him little by little on, on the basis of intellectual choice and realizing, you know, these are all the things that I've been looking for in a husband and not just, wow, I can't stop myself. I'm falling for this guy. And so that's why we chose this title, Crawling in Love. Not because you need to go slowly, and I should maybe clarify, Alan and I, when we met, um, and I'll tell a little bit more of our story along the way here, but when we met um, in June of 2000, he had lived in Africa all his life. I had lived in America, and we had never seen each other's faces. And a year and two days later, we were married. So sometimes the Lord leads you to crawl kind of fast. But that, that wasn't, that wasn't um, like a recommendation for this is how you should do it. I just want to emphasize what I'm talking about tonight is about principles. But it's not about rules. It's not... You know, you've got to do it exactly this way, and if you do it the way I'm telling you, then it's going to go fine. There are principles that the Lord has given to us, and the Bible is filled with them. And when we follow God's plan, you know, God is an artist, and every story is unique. Every person you meet, when you hear their love story, it's going to be amazing to see how the Lord led specifically in their lives. But these are principles that I've seen in numerous relationships. I'm working on my master's in biblical counseling right now, and somehow I get swamped with so many cases of counseling that I hardly get any schoolwork done. But there are all kinds of examples out there, and my life is just crammed with examples. And trying to distill down what to say in this presentation was quite a task. <laughs> but I'm, what I'm going to share with you tonight is five principles on how God leads people in relationships and how you can uh, make the progress from single to happily ever after. Um, so when I say finding the love of your life God's way, um, I'm not saying that I think that my way is the only way, but I'm saying God's way is the only way. And he'll show you as you lean on him. Now, um, I titled this, There's Something in the Era. My husband loves to pun, so um, I know other people who do too. I won't look at you. There is more talk about love and expression of love than ever in history. Right now, you know, everywhere you look, people are just swamped in love. Movies have to be dripping with romance or else blood to, you know, interest for different audiences. And there are more resources on how to love than ever before. You know, can you imagine 100 years ago, what did people look to when they wanted to learn how to fall in love? They talk to their parents or, you know, their friends or something like that. And now we have the Internet. We have Barnes & Noble, which is crammed with all kinds of books on how not to find a spouse. <clears throat> and there are more people to choose from and more weddings than ever before. We're gathered here, a lot of us, this weekend just because of one wonderful such occasion. 
and we're all very happy about that, Tim, and Sunny, wherever she may be, somewhere out there. Um, <laughs> and yet, this is the loneliest time in all of history. Marriages break up half the time, and the ones that stay together, many of you know that the majority of those that stay together are not really happy and fulfilling. And I don't believe that that's God's plan. Many people think, well, it's just because of, you know, everybody thinks that they can get divorced so easily, and that's part of it. But part of it is also the way that people choose spouses. Why is love so important? You know, when I was single, I remember going through the phases. Somebody would, you know, be interested in me, or I'd be interested in him, and then things wouldn't work out one way or another, and I'd say, that's it. I hate men. I'm never going to have anything to do with men again. But that's, that's not realistic. You know, God has given us the desire for love, and it's beautiful. It's a God-given longing. Um, and Genesis 2.18 says, um, I know we're pressed for time tonight, so I'm just going to read things off the screen. It is not good that the man should be alone. God has designed us to love and to be loved. His great relationship with Adam wasn't sufficient to make Adam happy. Now, it's interesting that God gave Adam life before Eve so Adam could see uh, what it was like to be alone, then he could appreciate marriage. Um, <laughs> but it is not good to be alone. And I had somebody use this text recently to explain to me um, that, you know, he didn't have the gift of singleness, and he knew that. Therefore, if things didn't work out in his present marriage, he'd have to get married again sometime soon. Please do not misapply things that the Bible says. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 8. In, in the Bible, it's so plain. God is a God of love. He is a God of relationships. The Ten Commandments, his rules for life, are rules all about love. The first four, love God. The last six, love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love. When we love God and we love one another, we're fulfilling the law. And love, last but not least here, um, as Robert Frost said, love is an irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. You know, I took that from more modern culture, but I just thought, you know, that's actually true. God has put into us that irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. The problem is we try to fill that God-shaped hole with people when that desire to be irresistibly desired is one that God wants to fill he is the one who irresistibly desires us. He is the one who loves us no matter what we are like. People, we tend to ex expect somebody else to love us unconditionally. Well, God does love us unconditionally. But as people, we sometimes have to put conditions on our relationships with other people, don't we? And as we relate more and more wholly with God, it makes it much easier to get along with other people as well. Now, there is, of course, love's evil twin. And... Um, I think most of you would recognize right away what I'm talking about here is lust. That's what most of our modern culture terms love. When we say love, you know, he's in love. We mean he can't get his eyes off this woman or his hands off this woman. And it's not love at all. It's lust. Uh, here I found a little cartoon. I'm sorry, I have a terrible weakness for cartoons. The other side here is love at first sight. And you can see the woman has found the man of her dreams. And in her dream, he is going to be bringing her flowers and ministering to her every whim, in short. It's all about her. And with him, he has also found the love of his life. And in his dreams, um, she is ministering to his every whim and every need. He sits in front of the TV, and you can be sure that's not exactly what her dream of happily ever after is. 
But this is the problem with lust. Lust is all about self. It's all about me. And we have this culture. I'm just appalled when I see t-shirts. It's all about me. I'm like, how can you be so brazen in something that's so self-obsessed, so miserable? But when we come to choosing a life partner, it's kind of like we have to hit the Y on the road and choose. Which way are we going to go? Are we going to try to follow love? Are we going to try to follow lust? Because the two ways of finding a partner are very different. I'm not going to get really deeply into what's wrong with the world's way, because I think most of us have a fairly good idea of it. Um, but the thrills and chills are when you feel the chemistry, the tingles. Alan, Alan used to talk about the tingles. Oh, I'm getting the tingles. And, and he's, <laughs> he's so funny. Those of you who don't know my husband, he's just a delight to be around. And the tingles are what we just smack our foreheads at when the, we talk, try to talk to teenagers. We're like, don't you understand? This is not the time to pick your spouse. But I know, I know. But when he looks into my eyes, I just... And it's, it would be funny, but it's awfully frightening because you know that they're going to wreck their lives if they continue this way. But the tingles is how people find their spouse these days, believe it or not. Instant attraction equals instant intimacy. And if it feels good, you have to do it. And the bottom line is follow your heart. You've got to follow your heart. And you don't know how many times I've heard that. Well, you know, I know that he's not the best influence on me, but I love him. I really love him, and I want to shake people. You love him? What do you mean you love him? <laughs> I remember I was, I was dating a guy, um, and I, I realized when I hit that fork in the road that love led me to break up with him because it all seemed so wonderful at first, and this was a warning about long-distance relationships. We had this wonderful long-distance relationship. He was a brilliant public speaker. He was so good at, at doing so many things, and I just thought, wow, this guy is so amazing. But, you know, knowing the dangers of long-distance relationships, I decided, well, we better spend some time together. So after we dated a couple of months, he came and spent a week at my, the school where I was working, and wow, things were not the way I thought they were. And then we went on a mission trip, and wow, you add jet lag to that. That was exciting. <laughs> But the bottom line was I realized that he was riding some serious waves in his spiritual experience and he needed to figure out his relationship with God without having the additional emotional confusion of figuring out whether he needed to get married. And so I, out of love, withdrew myself from the mix. It was because I loved him. And it wasn't that it was easy. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to break up. But I realized that he needed to be broken up with. He needed somebody to say, I love you too much to cultivate this relationship. And, you know, unfortunately, most people, when they love, they're following their feelings. As uh, one wise person, Ellen White, said, while you may love, do not love blindly. As I've told people, you know, they say, but I love him. You don't understand. You need to, sometimes you've got to pursue a person. You've got to go through a lot for them. You know, God has called us as Christians to love everybody. Isn't that right? Should you love everybody? Should you love the homeless person that's walking past you on the street? We should love everybody, but we should not marry everybody. There's a difference. <laughs> and, and we should not trust everybody. If you love everybody, you're a Christian. If you trust everybody, you're an idiot. And marriage has to be built on trust. So love is wonderful as far as it goes, but love isn't enough. When you follow your heart, I just thought it was important to throw this in. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. 
You know, the Bible is very plain that while we love, God calls us to be careful how we love, guard our hearts, make sure that we don't do something foolish because we can wreck our own lives, the lives of the people that we love, the lives of the children we bring into the world. It's a sobering thing. The way that romance is pictured in the movies and novels and things like that today, it, it makes it sound like all you have to do is follow your heart. It'll be great. And, you know, I say this just thinking of so many stories I've seen, people who have been killed, friends of mine, because they followed their hearts. And, and just overall, so many people who have ruined their lives. I just can't emphasize this enough. For those who are listening by audio verse or anything else, I've... I've talked to some people who are just so determined they've got to do this, follow their hearts. I want to urge you to follow the scriptures instead. The road most traveled goes from attraction to impulsiveness to infatuation, a test drive commitment, then a failed relationship, and you've got to find a Band-Aid fast because this hurts. So you find somebody new to make you feel better. And it's all about self. And that's why I say there's that why in the road. You've got to find something that's not about you. And it's not, it's not selfish to be reasonable. A life partner, when a life partner is chosen based on attractiveness or circumstances, instead of their character and their personality, you have something to fear. And I'm not saying that the Lord hasn't led people. I know many people who have chosen their partner in this way and that the Lord has blessed and led them into wonderful marriages. So, you know, you can say, the Lord's not going to lead you that way. I know the Lord has done it, but it's a very hazardous road to travel. And when your commitment is based on feelings instead of choices, then you have three possible outcomes. There is that narrow, possibly happily ever after. There are a few people out there who follow the world system and somehow end up happily ever after. More often, there's a breakup that's made very painful by bonding. And most often, probably, there's a life commitment built on a faulty foundation. I believe God has a better plan. God has a way that still may be painful sometimes. When God leads us through life, if you know that God is leading you, does that mean you're not going to suffer anymore? And when God is leading you in relationships, sometimes he may lead you in a way that you know not. It seems like it makes sense, and then later on it doesn't. That's what happened in my relationship with the, the guy that I dated long distance. It just seemed like the Lord had miraculously led for us to get acquainted and then to get better acquainted. And yet... The Lord didn't lead us to get married. I think, you know, in an ideal world, it would be wonderful if we could all aim for the goal of the first person we date is the first person we marry. And that, that sounds wonderful, and I know many people that the Lord has led that way. That's a blessing. But I have a little fear about that because I see sometimes people who take the, the mentality that, but I've already held hands with him, but I've already kissed her, so I have to marry her. Or we already started dating or courting, and if we break up, then that's going to be like admitting that the Lord didn't lead us together. You know, there are things that you can't learn about somebody when you're not in a committed relationship with them, and therefore there are steps, and that's why I want to emphasize tonight. It's risky to take steps. You know, we want to say, I'm standing on the side of the pool or I'm jumping in the pool. I'm going to make the commitment to get married right away, and the Lord will lead all the way. Um, I think it's better to take steps. It's better to let the Lord show you gradually. The Lord has definitely led many people in different paths. But in general, I think the Lord's plan has a process that involves steps. The first step I'm going to talk about tonight is becoming whole in Christ. Now, um, that step, while it doesn't sound like it has anything to do with your finding a life partner, has everything to do with it. 
Alan and I only met when we were 26 and 28, so we spent a whole lot of time on the becoming whole in Christ part, which we really needed to. We dated a few people, learned a lot from those relationships that didn't work out, and from just, you know, then we realized there were some real weaknesses in our lives. And separately, though we hadn't ever met one another, we decided we needed to study. We needed to learn some things. We read some really good books. We learned about communication and things like that that we needed. And we just started building our lives on a foundation of Christ. I can truly say when I met Alan, I wasn't looking for a husband. I wouldn't mind if one showed up if he was what I was looking for, but I wasn't looking for. You know what I mean? I wasn't on the hunt. I remember when I was younger going on a man hunt with my friend. We just decided we'd go out and stalk the campus and see who we could find that was cute and would flirt with us. I mean, it's astonishing how, how silly you can be when you're a child. But then again, you know, sometimes there are 50-year-olds who behave that way too. When you become whole in Christ, the first um, characterization of this step is that your focus is on a relationship with God. You're letting God fill you. And, you know, I've met many people who go from relationship to relationship compulsively because they're driven by a longing that they don't understand. And that longing is for, for Christ, not for a person. Um, this second focus you have is you prepare for your life calling. In step one, before you bring children into the world, before you have a spouse to support, it's best if you get prepared for your life calling. Um, that may be full-time ministry. It may be a ministry that's combined with something else that you're doing in life to make money. Whatever it is the Lord leads you to, it's very important. You know, I know lots of people who they get married and then they finish school, but as I'm watching some of them at Southern right now, I see, man, this is really tough on them. Their kids are struggling to be able to get time with their parents. The spouses are struggling. It's just better. So in general, I think God wants us to prepare for life callings before we really get serious about finding a life partner. And also, if you're called to the mission field and the person you're interested in may be called to be a lawyer here in Southern California, well, maybe the Lord would lead you in different ways. And it's, it's great to be able to commune with God and be confident of where you're going in life rather than 20 years down the road saying, I wouldn't have ever chosen this, this work, but I had to because we were getting married. The third part of step one is focus on overcoming weaknesses and developing your strengths. You know, the time that I was single, at that time, I remember, I remember the lonely nights. You know, let's be honest. You lie down, and I've had so much going on in my mind, and the things that I just wanted to talk to somebody about, and nobody understood, and nobody was there. And that was hard. But it was hard at that time to see some of the blessings of singleness. And someday, when those of you who aren't married yet are, you're going to look back and you're going to see, wow, being single was an awful lot of fun. There were so many great things you can do now. You know, I love camping. The last time we went camping, we dressed our daughter in five layers of fleece, count them five, and she still woke up freezing at two o'clock in the morning. We had to cram her in bed between us and she got sick and, and that was the last time we went camping. I'd love to go camping, but there are things I don't do right now that I love. I love swimming, I love hiking, I love rock climbing. There are things that just are on the back shelf in my life now. And um, when you get married, there are things that you can't do anymore. You can't just say, wake up Friday morning and say, I'm going to drive to so-and-so's house four hours away. You throw everything in the car and you're gone. That was so much fun. Maybe not all of you are like that. Okay. I was reckless. What can I say? <laughs> but you want to overcome your weaknesses and develop your strengths. Find who you are. Get to know your own personality. Get to know what you like to do. And if you build a lot of close friendships with other people, 
Those people also can be very instrumental in helping you identify your weaknesses and your strengths. Say, you know, you seem to have a problem with being a little abrasive. Have you noticed that? Those are good things to learn before you find the person you want to marry. Um, build quality same-sex friendships and non-exclusive opposite-sex friendships. You know, the people that I dated, and there weren't a whole lot of people that I dated um, after I became a Christian, only three, and one of them I married. But um, I, I built a lot of non-exclusive opposite-sex friendships. And, you know, the great thing about that is I'm still friends with those people. Every one of those guys, I'm still friends with them. We stay in touch with each other sometimes. Or when we see each other and haven't stayed in touch for years, you know, I don't see him and go, oh, my, my ex. You know, <laughs> that's a great thing. Um, but especially building quality same-sex friendships is a wonderful part of being single because the friendships that I made before I got married are the friendships that I have to lean on now. I have kids. I can't go out and make a whole lot of friends right now. And it's great to be able to lean on the friends that know me very well. Now, I want to mention the magnetic attraction uh, because this is, this is a common characteristic of those who are single, that some, sometimes you find a, a very strong drive to find somebody. And I call this a magnetic attraction because magnets have some things in common with magnetized people. Magnetized people are controlled by a force they don't understand. Have you, have you ever known somebody who they go from one abusive relationship to another. They can walk into the room and single out in 10 minutes the worst person in that room for them to spend time with. And just like a magnet, moth to the flame. Bzzz, they get bzzz again and again and again, and they just never learn. And why? They don't understand why, but they just can't stop. They've got this compelling drive in them from their past or something like that that makes them comfortable in an abusive relationship. Or they need to have somebody who will show them that they're very strong and controlling. And when they actually are in a relationship with that person, the person controls them. It's, it's frightening to see. Magnetized people follow impulse and instinct, not reason. Have you ever tried to reason with one of these people? An infatuated person? You sit down with them, you say, you know, have you thought about this? You really shouldn't be going out with this guy all the time, should you? Have you thought about maybe it's not the best for you to go hang out at her house until 11 o'clock every night? Yeah, you're right. I really shouldn't, should I? Man, you're right. I've been, I've been disobeying things that I knew I should. I've been vowing I wasn't going. You're right. I'm not going to do it anymore. And so, great, you know. I've, I've had these conversations. I get off the phone. <sighs> wow, saved that one. And 10 minutes later, they've invited the person out again, and they're, they're on their track again. They just can't stop themselves. Magnetized people are driven by their imbalances, and they need to develop a dependence on Christ that brings them to balance and wholeness, or they will develop a dependence on someone else. When you are a magnet, you are seeking somebody else who is the opposite imbalance. Magnetized people are idolatrous. They're codependent. Codependent is just another word for an idolatrous person, a person who is willing to put someone else in the place of Christ. And that's always a dangerous thing. An idolatrous relationship will always be a destructive relationship. And a magnetized relationship in which a person is controlled and driven by their imbalances instead of being whole and complete in Christ will always be a destructive relationship. So the keys to success in step one are, one, number one, make Christ the center of your life. Number two, plan your life around Christ, not a person. If you think that the Lord has called you to the mission field, plan to go to the mission field. It may not be where you end up. But it's great to go wherever you feel the Lord is leading you. 
Number three, develop skills to support a family. Number four, avoid emotional involvement with the opposite sex. Emotional involvement, by that I do not mean do not talk to them when you walk into the room. Please, don't, don't misunderstand anything I'm saying here. I mean, um, you know, the conversations that you have. Everybody's all, all the group is out on a walk, but then one person kind of has been looking depressed lately, and then they kind of drift to you and start talking about how things have been really hard for them lately. And then they walk slower. And, of course, since you're listening to them, you have to walk slower too. And soon the group is up there and you are back here. And these things are complicated. I don't think I need to explain to you what I mean in avoid emotional involvement. But just for the case of, you know, the sake of those who are listening on Audioverse, don't get into anything that comes into the deeper communication levels. And we'll talk about that later. Develop self-discipline. If there's ever a time that you need self-discipline, it's when you're married. Evaluate your own character. Character, I want to distinguish between character and personality here. Character is how much you're like Jesus. Personality is who you are as a person. Your little quirks, the things that, that make you you. When we get to heaven, we're all going to have our own personalities. But we're all going to have one character, the character of Christ. So you evaluate your character. You figure out, what are my weaknesses? How do I need to grow more into the, the image of Christ? Am I struggling with anger issues? Am I struggling with self-discipline? These are the things you work on before you find your spouse. <clears throat> develop your own personality. When I say develop your personality, I say experiment with things that you think you, know, you might like. Find out what you enjoy. Find out what you don't enjoy. That's, that's the part of being singleness that you'll never have again. And lastly, surrender. Surrender is, of course, all the way through this process crucial. But I think it's worth mentioning. Um, there are no Cinderella's. I found this interesting research on CNN where they said researchers tracked more than 24,000 people from 1984 to 1995, asking participants every year to rate their overall life satisfaction from zero, totally unhappy, to 10, totally happy. The average boost from marriage was small, one-tenth of one point on the scale. And they said, I quote, people who get married and stay married are more satisfied than average long before the marriage has occurred. So this is from the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in March of 2003. And the bottom line was marriage doesn't make you happy. If you were happy before you get married, you are going to be happy after you get married. And if you are unhappy before you get married, in their research they found there was a little blip of happier time. And then they went back to being just about the same as they were before they got married. So whole and happy people make whole and happy marriages. Keys to success in step, uh, maybe I meant to say this step two. Anyway, make Christ the center of your life. Plan your life around Christ, not a person. Nope, I already read, I must be pushing the wrong button. There we go. Woo, that's much better. Okay, until God calls you into marriage, he calls you to focus on becoming whole in him. Your security, identity, and heart must be bound up in your friendship with him. And without this, I guarantee you, marriage will not bring you happiness. You'll be like an empty cup. Two empty cups trying to fill themselves from each other do not make two full cups. It's only when Christ fills us and fills us all the way up so we're overflowing that we have love to pour out into other people's lives. And when you have that, being single is not a miserable experience. It may be lonely sometimes, but those lonely urges are the call of Christ to our hearts. As we recognize that, that Christ is saying, let me fill you. 
let me satisfy you. That's what God really wants. That's what he wants to accomplish in our lives. Now, step one was becoming whole in Christ. Step two is observing. This is where we get to something that actually begins focusing on somebody other than building yourself into who God wants you to be. When you start observing someone else. Now, in this step, I've um, distinguished between observing a one person um, in particular and observing just everybody. You know, I think you can learn a lot from just observing everybody. I remember seeing when I was in college guys who would, you know, stomp their foot and throw a tantrum when they didn't get what they wanted. And say, Check. That's what I wouldn't want. <laughs> so there are plenty of things that you can learn by just watching, but you're not specifically observing for the purpose of finding somebody. But this one I'm talking about when you're focusing on building quality friendship, you spend time together in groups, but I'm talking about you've found somebody that you're interested in. You don't single them out. You're not expressing interest in them, but you're noticing them. Don't indicate your interest or feel out the other person. This is where I think most people make a mistake. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that these steps, you know, like, okay, my one-year-old, he loves to, to pile blocks on top of each other, right? You know, you put the first block, then you put the second block, then the third block, and then usually we never get to the fourth and fifth because he knocks them down. But, you know, the blocks are on top of each other. You have to have first before you can have second. This is not necessarily a block process. You know, you're going to have a lot of time where you're growing into who you need to be, and then maybe you start observing somebody, and then things don't work out for one reason or another, and you're back in the, the growing into who you need to be phase. Or maybe you start observing, and then you move into the next phase we'll talk about in a minute, and then you realize, no, no, that's not the best, and you go back to the observing phase or even to the one before it. So this is not a, you know, after you've done step one, all right, check, now you're moving on to step two. But as you, as you notice in this gradual process, you start noticing somebody and you think, hmm, that's a quality person. Now, for guys and girls, obviously, your approaches are going to be different in this. A guy is noticing somebody with the intent that if things work out, he needs to take some initiative. And, you know, I may be old-fashioned, but if I were to tell you the story of Alan and me finding one another, and I explain to you, you know, I just noticed he was such a great guy. And so one day, I sat down with him, and I said, you know... I just realized that you're a wonderful man and you're all these things that I've been looking for in a husband. I wonder, will you consider me? I, somehow that just doesn't fit my image of happily ever after. And I don't think it does for most of the girls here. So guys, you know, when I'm saying observing, you realize you need to be the initiator. But please spare women the, the whole spy thing where, you know, you send one of your friends to talk with her and say, yeah, have you noticed so-and-so? He's a nice guy, isn't he? And she goes, yeah, I wish he'd ask me. And the spy scurries back with the news. Come on, you know, really. <laughs> I remember when Alan and I had just met Alan about a week or a week and a half before, and then one day when we were driving in the car and something came up in conversation, he started singing this song to me. And I thought, wow, I like this. Not, not because he sang so incredibly, although he does, of course. But because I said, this is a guy who is secure. He's not, he's not worried, you know, I can't carry a tune perfectly. She's not going to be impressed with me. He was just singing. He was, he was relaxed. He was comfortable. I thought, this guy, this guy isn't afraid of what everybody thinks of him. I like this. You know, guys, have mercy. Be secure. If you want to pursue a girl, then move to step three. But don't play on the edges here. And, you know, 
try to feel out, is she interested in me? And then at the same time, you're feeling out, you know, five other girls and say, is she interested in me? You know, girls just don't really want to ever know that, you know, you chose them because you threw out the line and she was the first one that, that grabbed the hook. You know, <laughs> you want to choose her for who she is. So I want to really, you know, encourage guys, don't, don't play with girls' hearts. That's trifling with hearts. When you play with five different girls and kind of then figure out, okay, out of these five, these three seem like they would be interested in me. And then you pick out of those three which one you like the best. That, that just seems to me like the devil's system more than the Lord's. It causes wounds. It causes breaks in relationships. It's much wiser if you keep this observing phase as just what it is. You're watching. You're not indicating anything, Okay. So you're not feeling out, what's the other person think of me? You know, let me catch her eye across the room and see what she does. Just, just be yourself and keep yourself back. Girls may, you know, they may like it when you flirt with them, you spend time with them, you kind of test them out, but they won't respect it. And guys will not, well, they may like it, girls, if, if a guy, you know, if they, they may like it if you come up to them and flirt with them and tease them about everything, but they won't respect it. You evaluate character and you evaluate personality. Now, two of the best ways that you can evaluate character and personality, especially when you're not trying to indicate interest, is talking to your friends. That's also one of the worst ways that you can evaluate character and personality. Because, you know, you have so many friends that are, are self-appointed spies and will now scurry to the other person. So if you're going to get counsel, <laughs> be very discerning. Because you can inadvertently break some hearts. I, you know, you think about this girl and you decide against her and she knew all about it all along. So in step two, I've distinguished step two from step three because of this primary thing. In step two, you're not indicating to anybody that you're interested. You're just watching and listening and praying that the Lord will give you discernment. Um, in the book Adventist Home, page 57, it says, To trifle with hearts is a crime of no small magnitude in the sight of a holy God. And yet some will show preference for young ladies and call out their affections and then go their way and forget all about the words they have spoken and their effect. A new face attracts them and they repeat the same words, devote to another the same attentions. I wonder if Ellen White was thinking of Jay and Andrews when she wrote this. I don't know how many of you know the story, and I'm not going to share the whole story in detail here, but Jay and Andrews, the beloved pioneer who Andrews University is named after, had his own little story of trifling with hearts when he and Annie Smith, Uriah Smith's sister, were interested in each other. They worked at the Review and Herald together. I think Annie was about 19 at the time. Maybe she was a little older than that, actually. Um, anyway, whatever was going on, apparently John Andrews indicated interest in her, flirted with her, and she was a, you know, a, a very sincere girl and she liked him and then he moved on to the next girl when he got tired of Annie. Annie was devastated and there was a um, disease going around, I think it was tuberculosis in the office at that time a couple of people had caught tuberculosis and Annie stopped eating she was so depressed and dejected that she she didn't take care of herself so she got more amount more weak and she eventually contracted to tuberculosis and she had to go home and died of tuberculosis. And Ellen White wrote to John Andrews and said, Annie died a martyr at your hands. Trifling with hearts is not a picnic. I'm not saying that you're going to kill somebody, 
But she advised him to marry the woman that he had moved on to and to stop this pattern, which he did. He married her, and that was the wife that he traveled to Europe with. Just a little uh, side story. I wondered if Ellen White was thinking about this when she wrote this um, warning. So the keys to success in step two are don't make a mental or emotional commitment. You know, a mental commitment or an emotional commitment can be so strong in your mind that you're unable to see things objectively. And the key with this is you're observing, you're being objective, you're staying emotionally out of it and saying, all right, well, I see some good things. I see some things that maybe I should be concerned about. You know, you're watching for things. You're not going, wow, won't it be wonderful? I can just see her in a wedding dress. Don't trifle with a heart. Evaluate character. Evaluate personality. Surrender and pray for discernment. Pray for the Holy Spirit to guide you. Pray for God to show you. As surely as God has a plan for you to be in heaven, he has a plan for you while on earth to fulfill his will. And he cares about these things. Of all the, th the decisions you make in life, marriage is one of the most crucial. God will guide you. I believe God guided me in helping me to see some things that I needed to see in people that I could have otherwise ended up married to and destroyed my life and ministry. Haste makes waste. Um, the, the great thing about this phase, when you're observing, is it can last as long as you like and you're not messing with anybody's heart. If you start rushing towards something, you're likely to hurt the person. Whereas if you take time and you're not hurting anybody, you're watching out, you're just seeing what they're like in a variety of situations, this is the best way to prepare yourself not to break anybody's heart. Immaturity is characterized by the inability to wait. If you cannot wait, you are like my daughter, who has a very difficult time waiting. She explained to my mom the other day, because we'd had several talks about the whole wait thing, and she said, well, Grandma, sometimes God says yes when we pray, and sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says wait a while. I don't like it when he says wait. <laughs> we all don't like it when he says wait, do we? <laughs> but if you're going to spend the rest of your life with somebody, another month doesn't matter, right? And in some ways, if you're investing in a quality relationship, you know, a girl who knows that, guys, if she knows that you've observed her for a long time, she knows you aren't just snatching her because she was walking past, that you actually have been thinking about this. And that shows respect for her. That shows that you've chosen her out of the crowd. And that's, that's really rewarding. That's very satisfying for a girl. The more you do your homework, the less you risk heartache or mistake. And I'm not saying that there's no risk. You know, love is about risk. When I have a child, I choose to love this child. And I know this kid can wreck my life. What did God do wrong with Adam and Eve? And one, one choice to love can cause so much heartache. So I'm not saying there's no risk, but as you follow these steps, the Lord will help you to have discernment and hopefully not have as much heartache. Make haste slowly. Adventist Home, page 44. While pure love will take God into all its plans and will be in perfect harmony with the Spirit of God, passion will be headstrong, rash, unreasonable, defiant of all restraint, and will make the object of its choice an idol. Adventist Home, page 50. Probably all of you have observed a relationship or two in which that kind of characterized it. And probably if you've watched any movies, they're like all about that, you know. <laughs> So the guy is a criminal, but she falls in love with him anyway, and then, you know, magically, he leaves his life of crime and stops swinging from woman to woman and is faithful and gets a job and supports her and the family, and they live happily ever after, right? 
naturally. That's the way you would think it would happen if you watch some of the garbage that's out there. True love is not a strong, fiery, impetuous passion. On the contrary, it is calm and deep in its nature. It looks beyond mere externals and is attracted by qualities alone. Think character and personality. It is wise and discriminating, and its devotion is real and abiding. Adventist Home, page 51. That's true love. That's not what you want to, that's not what you're going to see out there in the world generally. You want to avoid serious pitfalls. These are the things that you can watch and observe. Usually you can see these things before you start dating somebody, if you take some time and you're discerning. Lifestyle issues, um, by that I don't mean that um, everything in a li person's lifestyle. You know, you may eat a little differently than each other. You may listen to a little different music than each other. Alan and I had differences on music when we first got together. And we talked about things and we realized, you know, we may not ever see everything exactly eye to eye, but we could work through the conflicts. And in the end, that was a lot of why I chose to marry him. Not because I thought that we would never have a conflict, but because I saw the way that he worked through the conflicts that we had. When I bring up to him something, I say, well, what do you think about this? And he would give me an answer and be like, man, that's, that's totally not the way I would have ever said it. But I think I could live with that or, you know, and then I'd share with him what I thought and without being defensive, he would say, well, that's really interesting. I never thought of it that way. What about this? And we could talk back and forth and I just loved it. I was like, wow, I can talk with this guy. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't try to force me to believe his way. He doesn't demean me for the fact that I'm not as intelligent or spiritual as he is. He just loves me. He just respects me and treats me like I'm an equal and that we can think through this, this through together. That's what I appreciated about it. And that's the approach to conflict that will bring success and happiness in a marriage. We're going to talk about conflict and communication tomorrow afternoon. Um, but lifestyle issues, there are things that are serious. I dated a guy once who uh, I found out because I didn't follow these rules that I'm t telling you here. I found out too late that he believed very differently than I did on salvation. He didn't believe a person could ever feel confident that they were right with God. No matter what, you can never actually feel confident that you're right with God. You, no matter how much you've prayed, confessed, put things right between you and God, you may still be lost and you should never feel safe. I didn't think that that was quite the way I wanted to look at things. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought it wasn't what I wanted. But it was complicated because now we were dating. You want to figure out those things ahead of time. Theological issues and serious lifestyle issues. You know, you may dress a little differently. One of you may wear shorts, one of you may not wear shorts. I think you can usually work through that if you've got good conflict management skills. But if one of you wants to keep Sabbath one way and the other one wanna, wants to keep Sabbath a different way, that's going to be much harder on your children. And also, you know, things like music can be too. You can have his and her food and his and her clothes. It's a little more difficult to have his and her music once you have kids in the mix. So there are things you need to talk through and deal with. But lifestyle issues are things you can watch for. Doctrinal issues, integrity issues. I dated somebody once who I... Uh, it sounds like I've got all these people I dated, this vast, and there really weren't that many. <laughs> anyway, um, I found out only a few days after he broke up with me that he had been having a relationship on the side with a girl who was about half his age. I think she was about 16. And I had had no clue whatsoever. I never would have known anything like this. It was devastating to me. If I had only watched for some signs, I might have been able to be warned. And personality issues. If one of you is a neat freak and the other is not, 
you know, you may be able to negotiate that. You may be able to grow a whole lot in your character based on that. But <laughs> it would be smart to at least address it and think through, you know, how are, how are both of you going to handle things? You know, one person's ideal Saturday night may not be the other person's ideal Saturday night. If one of you wants to invite half the church over every Saturday night for popcorn and, and the other one of you thinks that Saturday night should be spent the two of you reading love poems by the fire... That, that may be a personality issue you're going to have to work out. The process of mate selection, step three, after becoming whole in Christ and observing, is not just friends. I really had to wrestle with, what do I call this? Because <clears throat> it's not just friends. If there's one most misused term in the whole Adventist conservative English language, it's just friends. It's so irritating to me. Because everybody tells me, yeah, you know, I talked about it with him, and I like him, but he doesn't like me. So we talk about it, now we're just friends. Or even worse, now we're just best friends. Or we're like brother and sister now, because he likes me, but I don't like him, because I like so-and-so. But if things don't work out with him, maybe, you know, but we'll, we'll figure it out. <coughs> Excuse me. But right now, we're just like brother and sister. And it's so wonderful, because I can just talk to him about everything for hours and I stay up with him late at night and we just we have a great time together and he's just like my brother I love it when he gives me a hug at night because it doesn't mean a thing to me and I know it doesn't mean a thing to him either mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah just best friends and whenever somebody says you know look we're just best friends I just uh, the alarm goes off in my mind so you're not just friends just be real with yourself okay if you're gonna lie to everybody else at least don't lie to yourself if you're interested in somebody and or they're interested in you, you are not just friends. You are something besides just friends. You are somebody who may be moving into a, a more complicated phase of the relationship, or one of you is interested in that, but the other one is not. But when you treat somebody, when you know they're interested in you, and you treat them just like you, you would treat them if they weren't, that can be very damaging to them. You know, I've inadvertently made that mistake. Uh, there was one guy who was just like a brother to me, and I, I honestly, I could never in my wildest dreams have thought that he would be interested in me. And then I got a letter from him one day, and I was thunderstruck. It had never in my wildest dreams occurred to me that he could be interested in me, and I felt terrible because here I had been best friends with him. I'd talk about everything with him, and, and you know, I just had never thought about it. But we need to be careful because it's also important that we guard someone else's heart. Even if we're not interested in them, that doesn't mean that we can't hurt them. So when you're not just friends, you integrate interests slowly in small ways. This is where things are a little hazy, you know. Some people would say, well, what's the difference between observing and not just friends? The difference is that when you're not just friends, you have in your own mind at the very least a commitment to, I think I want to find out more about the will of God for my relationship with this person. Now, I put here you make a verbal commitment cautiously, if at all. Alan and I did have a verbal commitment at one point, not the initial part of this process. First, you know, the becoming whole in Christ took us 20-something years. The observing part took us um, about three days. <laughs> That, that, that's not what I recommend or anything. Remember, we're crawling here in love, right? But um, in our case, that's what happened. And Alan had felt a conviction from God. The first time he saw me walking past, he felt God was telling him, you need to talk to that woman. You need to get to know her. And he thought that was really strange. 
But, you know, eventually when circumstances worked it out, he did start getting to know me. And I obliviously said, oh, neat, a guy from Africa, he obviously is not interested in me. I forgot his name right away. I didn't pay any attention to him. But because I was hanging out with my friend Heather Crick and he was hanging out with my friend Heather Crick, we uh, ended up being together quite a bit in, over a weekend. And then when we all went to a potluck together, Heather disappeared, which she didn't plan. It just happened, and there we were, and I talked to this guy for an hour and a half, two hours, something like that. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. But I still didn't really think of him as, as being a, a prospect. It was just kind of, well, you know, he's a neat guy. If he lived in America, but he doesn't. <laughs> and he had never been flirtatious with me at all, so I really didn't think seriously about it. Um, but about two, three weeks, three weeks after that was where he emailed me, and he said, look, I have made the decision in my mind, I want to date you. And I wrote back and said, I am not willing to make that commitment. I told you you need to give me more time than this. But at that point, I made the verbal commitment to him that I was not going to pursue finding out the will of God on a relationship with anyone else until I felt confident to the will of God on the relationship between us. So in our case, we had a verbal commitment maybe halfway through this process. But for some people, it's more of you just start noticing. And you know, it is kind of difficult when you go through the process of observing, at some point it gets harder and harder to observe without being observed, right? You, <laughs> you can only hide behind the curtain and watch for so long. So sooner or later, you transition into the part where the other person starts becoming aware of that. And, and that's not a bad thing. I'm just saying it's important to discern in your mind. If you don't want them to know about it, you need to take steps to make sure that they don't know that you're observing them. Because you may be observing five different people at the same time and saying, all of these girls are really nice. All of these guys seem like high quality. And that's not a sin. But once you move into making that commitment or making that interest known to a person, you have the potential to play with their heart and to hurt them. So it's very important that you keep it, keep it at a level where when you're not sure if you want to pursue this person that you don't let them know it. I guess that's the simplest way to put it. And seek prudent counsel. I say prudent counsel because I think at this point it's really important before you make a commitment to somebody that you've talked to other people who might have been very helpful. If, if you know, you start dating, people sometimes just shut up. And, you know, they go, oh, you're dating her. I'm not going to say anything about the fact that I just saw her throwing shoes at the cat yesterday. But when you're not dating yet, sometimes your friends will be more willing to talk with you about things, especially if you say, you know, I've been thinking about so-and-so. What do you think? Please don't say anything to her, you know. Don't do the spy thing. But at, at some point, you move from just observing, which may be one or more people, to thinking, I think I want to find out more about this particular person. Keys to success in step three. Ooh, Alan put a neat little fade in there. Don't let intimacy get ahead of commitment. This is crucial, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Don't let commitment get ahead of knowledge. This is maybe even more crucial. Get wise counsel and surrender. You have to surrender to the, the Lord in every step of this process and pray earnestly. Um, as Ellen White says, um, if you're praying twice a day before you start considering somebody, you need to pray four times a day. Really bring that before the Lord and ask him to give you discernment above and beyond wisdom you would have. There were things that the Lord did for me that I never would have found out about. Like, for example, with my ex-boyfriend who had the character issue. I 
would have had no way of finding out, but he was caught in something that I could never have had anything to do with catching him in. And then he was forced to confess to me because he was sure I was going to find it out from someone else, which I wouldn't have because I hadn't actually been in those gossip circles. But he thought I would find out about what he had been doing. And so the Lord just gave me confirmation. This is the right thing to do. You need to move on from this relationship. God will do things for you that will just blow your mind as you pray and you surrender and you just ask him, Lord, show me. Show me what to do. Now the circles of intimacy here, um, I want to just show you briefly um, these are concentric circles for those who are listening on audio verse. The center circle is you, and that's where your heart is. And then the next circle out is intimate. And then the next circle out, friends. And the circle beyond that is acquaintances. And the outermost circle is people you just met. When you just met somebody, you have casual conversation with them. Man, it's hot out today, isn't it? Sure is. You don't sit down with them. I mean, maybe, maybe some of you have met people like this. I know I have, where you sit down with them and Ten minutes into the conversation, they're telling you about their, their daughter who is going through this really compl complicated relationship with her boyfriend, and the boyfriend is related to the mother's ex-boyfriend, but it, it, you know, and they're, they're pouring out their guts to you, and you're going, whoa, what was your name again? <laughs> Maybe it only happens to me because I happen to be a counselor, but people you just met, you don't usually pour out your guts to them if you're a balanced person. You've got friends that you talk to who you know you can trust. You don't know if you can trust the person walking past you. So the more time you spend with a person, the more you know if they're trustworthy or they're not. So your acquaintances, you may share a little more with them. I would say with acquaintances, you share more information. With your friends, you share your opinions. And of course, this isn't just layers like an onion. It's a gradual kind of thing, but you get the point, I think. Um, the, the better you know somebody, the more you know that they're trustworthy, the more that you trust them with your secrets and with your heart. And when you get to the very most intimate circle in your life, that's where you talk about your fears, your, your needs, your, your feelings, your deepest feelings. That's the kind of relationship you don't want to have with somebody if you're not sure that you're going to continue this relationship with them. If you do, you're asking for a lot of heartbreak or you're asking for a commitment that gets ahead of where you ought to be because then you find out things about them, you realize this really isn't the best person for me to marry. They don't want to raise their children the same way I want to raise my children, but now you've gotten this intimacy that draws you close to them and you're unable to pull yourself out. So let your intimacy grow with your level of commitment. Um, and this is a great principle for just interacting in all of life. I remember sharing this with a, a class in personal evangelism and one of the girls came up to me afterwards she'd been a bible worker for years she said man if only somebody had told me this beforehand it would have been so much easier because she just found when she was dealing with guys say she would go and give a bible study to somebody and then they'd start talking about their personal problems and she would listen because she thought well I'm supposed to minister the way that Christ did so you know she would listen to them and try to help them and then the more you know it's like every time you cut off the head of the dragon three more sprout and before she knew it, she was all involved in their lives, and they were all emotionally connected to her because they just poured their guts out to her. They told her all about their feelings and their fears, and now they wanted to marry her. She's like, what do I do? The, the key is, if you don't want to build a bond with somebody, don't open your heart to them, and don't let them open their hearts to you. Now, with a, a guy, is, you know, girls, if a guy is going to have the courage to come and talk to you about his interest in you, please have mercy on him. You know, I, I had a friend who, you know, and, and he wasn't the wisest on this. He really liked this girl. So he told everybody about it except her. 
he told all of his friends and all of her friends, and everybody knew, and it was the talk of the town, and it was, it was you know, amusing to a lot of people, and it was not amusing to her. So finally, she sat him down and had a little heart-to-heart in which she informed him she was not interested in him and would not be interested in him, and would he kindly stop talking about her. You don't have to go through that, guys. <laughs> but girls, you know, there is something to be said. And guys also, you know, if a girl is chasing you, there are ways that you can let a person know you're not interested besides just breaking the gaze when you catch their, their gaze across the room. Um, if you, you know, you're talking alone with the person and you sense that this person may be starting to get interested in you and it's one of those, oh, no, rather than the, oh, wow, moments, you, you know. There are, there are ways to communicate your lack of interest. Like for starters, don't talk about your needs and fears. Don't talk about your deeper feelings. Stay on the surface. Talk with them about casual stuff. Bring somebody else into the conversation. Being alone with somebody creates intimacy. It creates the, wow, only the two of us have shared this conversation. So if you don't want to do that, don't create that. You can even, I remember I had a guy interested in me when I was doing Bible work with Net99. And I was like, oh, help. He just, you know, I met him on the street, handed him a handbill. The next thing I knew, he was coming to the meetings and asking me out for coffee. And so I talked to all the guys on the Bible work team. I was like, please, guys, don't leave me alone with him. If you see him coming after me, come and stand with us. And we ended up one night, the guy wanted to walk me back to the church where I was staying. We had seven guys walking me home that night. <laughs> but it worked out. He got the picture. I had no intimate relationships with any of those guys, and it all worked out just fine. Now all of you are going to be paranoid. If anybody stands in a, in a couple of two, then you, you invite somebody over. <laughs> oh, no, she thought I was interested. No, I'm kidding. Okay, you just... You just want to keep this as a rule of thumb in your mind. If you don't want to build intimacy with this person, don't talk to them about deep things. And if you do want to build intimacy with them, build it slowly as you know that they're trustworthy and let your commitment and your intimacy stay hand in hand. Questions to ask while you are considering this person. Is this person a lot like Jesus? Is this person a lot like you? And by this, I don't mean that the person needs to be a carbon copy of you. Praise the Lord, Alan and I are not carbon copies of each other. But there are a lot of things we have in common. Number one, spiritually, we are on the same page. We don't do everything right, but we see how the Lord is leading in our lives. We have the same idea of what kind of relationship we want to have with God. Socially, we had the same kind of friends. One of the guys I dated, his friends were weird. I didn't understand them. They, like, sat around and, and just talked about, they, like, told jokes all the time. I was like, can't you guys talk about real stuff, you know, like what you're doing in your lives? But that wasn't the kind of friends he had. And then when I met Alan's friends, I was like, wow, now these are friends. These are the kind of people that you just want to go camping with the whole weekend and laugh all weekend long. And, and just you can have deep conversations. You can sing together. You, and that was the kind of friends that I liked. Socially, he liked the same kind of people I liked, and that was a great confirmation to me. And also the kind of marriage he wanted to have. Um, when I had dated the other guy, he, his, his emotional depth just never was there. Whereas with Alan, he was a person that his longing was to have a marriage where we were best friends, where we shared everything with each other, where we are able to communicate on a deep level and where if I don't like something, I will tell him. Um, <laughs> He, he dated a girl who told him one time, I'm like an open book, but you don't know what page I'm on. 
thankfully he uh, read some books and he, he learned some stuff. And with me, he said, what I liked about Nicole was that she told me exactly where she was. Now, maybe that was what he liked when I married him and he, he may regret it now. But I will sit down beside him and say, what I need right now is for you to hug me. Would you please? <laughs> And he likes that, you know, so that's great. You know, the kind of things we want to do on a Saturday night. Fortunately, we are both the fireplace people and the have a whole bunch of people over to our house. But at least we're in this mess together. <laughs> we may not be able to decide what we want to do on a Saturday night, but we both are drawn both ways. <laughs> that's great, socially. Intellectually, you want to be somewhat on the same level. There's a really good book called uh, Finding the Love of Your Life, I think it is, that has some of these things in there. It lists some of the critical things that you need to be similar in. They mention also energy level, which can be important, but I don't think it's as important as some of these. Intellectually, you want to be able to share things that are interesting to you. Alan and I love to talk about psychology and what makes people tick and why they do the things that they do. Those are the kind of things that build a marriage because you want to share them. And habitually, your leisure time, what do you want to do when you have a day off? What kind of vacation do you want to go on? Um, how much time do you want to spend visiting your family when you have vacation? Um, do you want to go out and chop wood and do chores around the house? It's nice if you can do it together. Whereas if one of you wants to go sit by the lake and the other one wants to accomplish things around the house on your days off, it's going to cause conflict. Conflict is not your enemy in a marriage, but it can be if you can't work through it. The problem is not conflict. The problem is selfishness, and we'll talk about that more tomorrow. But in, in today's culture, there are so many things to be in conflict about. It's nice to have things in common on these issues. So in the process of mate selection, after you've become whole in Christ, you've observed, you've gone through the not just friends stage, now you get to step four, courting or dating. Now, you know, some people say we really need to call it courting. I'm not as fussy about the name. And I realized when I was dating Alan or courting him, whatever, that if I told people I was courting him, some people thought I was Amish. So, you know, I'm not as concerned about what you call it. I'm more concerned about what kind of process it is. But if you call it courting or if you call it dating, what I'm talking about here is when you commence a committed relationship. He asks, she answers, hopefully. And if she asks and he answers, well, you know, go figure. You guys figure it out on your own. Continue focusing on getting to know one another's personality and character. You know, there are things that you can't find out when you're not in a committed relationship. It's kind of silly to be, be sitting with a person that you haven't actually asked to date you and saying, so how many kids do you want to have? You know, what, what kind of things would you want to do with your children? Are you going to homeschool them? You know, birth control. What do you believe on birth control? There are things you don't talk about when you're not dating. So that's why it's important to have this stage. And if you can't work those things out when you're dating, then you, by all means, don't need to keep going forward. You need to work out some of those issues. But that's why step by step, this, thing's, this needs to go gradually. You progress slowly in, emo in emotional intimacy. You know, we have this tremendous longing for emotional intimacy, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I found with Alan that the more that I knew him, the more that I loved him, the more that I respected him, the more that I appreciated when he shared with me. And that was, that was something that had to grow as I learned I could trust him. And there were times that he would tell me, you know, there are some things I want to share with you, but I'm not ready to yet. I'm going to share them with you soon. That was good for me. I just wanted to know, okay, he's, he's growing in his trust with me, and 
you know, he's not just going to pour out his guts. He's a balanced guy. He's thinking things through. Regulate physical intimacy by counsel and conviction. This is a difficult one to explain because I know different people have different convictions on what's appropriate when a person is dating. I guess I would say um, two rules, <coughs> well, maybe three rules I would, I would govern it by. The one is that you just, you don't want to do anything that disobeys the rule of purity and virtue. Whatever God has called you to do by your convictions, that's what you want to do. Um, when, you're, when you're physically intimate, it builds emotional intimacy. It makes it harder for you to break off the relationship. So your physical intimacy, by all means, must stay behind where your level of commitment is. That's the second thing. And the third is that the more you save for later, the better it's going to be. If you're going to be married to this person someday, why not save your kiss for later? Alan and I kissed for the first time on our wedding day. And that was the most amazing kiss of my life. I can't even tell you what it was like. It was just, wow, I'm finally really married to this guy. And I'd kissed people before and he'd kissed people before. But it was all different because this kiss meant so much. He had just pledged his life to me. I had just pledged my life to him. That was beautiful. I'm not saying that that's God's plan for every person. This is what you should do or else you've fallen short. But I do know people who have kind of accidentally kissed. And I don't think it's, it's as special that way. You know, if you're, if you're going to do something physically, if you're going to progress physically in your relationship, make sure that both of you feel okay with it, that both of you feel this is in harmony with your convictions. Otherwise, one of you may feel this is totally fine. The other one may be conflicted and feeling disrespected and even unloved by this, what should be an expression of affection, of true love, because they're feeling like, well, he knows I really believe I shouldn't be doing this, and yet he's doing it anyway. That's so wrong. So your physical intimacy needs to be controlled very carefully and realize if you have the rest of your lives to be intimate with one another, why should you race now? The longer you wait, the more love there is in it. The more you know one another and love one another. You can't love them when you don't know them well. And the more you know them, the more you'll truly love them. And then the more that your physical intimacy will mean in your relationship. Um, for Alan and me, that was a precious part of our relationship. Just knowing that, wow, even though We've shared things with other people. We're holding back. Now, it would have been a lot more difficult if he hadn't been in Africa. <laughs> but we did have a couple of months that we were on the same continent. First, I went over to Africa and spent a month with him. And then before we got married, he came over here just a month before our wedding. And it was very difficult, but it was so worth it. Keys to success in step four. Number one, be honest. If you're going to spend the rest of your life with this person and you're figuring out if you want to, you've got to be totally honest with them. Number two, communicate. Let them know what you're really thinking about. And listen. Communication is really more about listening than about talking. This is one of the places where it's great to have people who are similar rather than different. You know, if, if you're different in areas like, you know, say, Alan, Alan loves to handle the budget. Me, I'm allergic to numbers. So we're, we're happy with that. We're different as night and day, and that's great by us. But when it comes to communicating, you want to have somebody who desires the same level of communication and is capable of the same level of communication. Opposites do attract, but they also irritate. So if, if you find the person that just, wow, they're the life of the party and everybody loves to be around them and it's just so gratifying to be with them because you're so quiet and 
It's just so great to be with somebody who will always keep things entertaining and always has something to say. Later on, you're probably going to be frustrated because they never shut up. So communicate. Find out where you both are on this. If you haven't already found out, for sure find out by now. Get wise counsel. If never before, certainly now. Further evaluate character and personality and make haste slowly in emotional intimacy and physical. And surrender and pray. In every phase, this is just so crucial. Now, for Alan and me, we made a covenant, and I'm not going to quote the whole thing here because it was really long, and I know we're already running a little over, but this was one part I thought was important. We choose to avoid other romantic attachments until we are sure of the will of God for our relationship. This was a covenant we made when we were dating, when we just started dating, and we're going to post our covenant on the website. We just started a website, crawlinlove.com, so it's not there yet, but it will be, maybe by the time somebody listens to this on Audioverse. Um, if after prayerful consideration and counsel, either of us believes God is not leading us together, he or she will be free to share the reasons why in honesty and to terminate this relationship without guilt. That was very important. Not because we ever broke up, but that I had this confidence that he's not going to blow up or isolate me or tell me how terrible I am if I break it off. I just have the obligation to share with him why. And I felt that that was really fair to both of us. And of course, in the end, we didn't have to bother with that. Adventist Home, page 45, says, Weigh every sentiment and watch every development of character in the one with whom you think to link your life destiny. While you may love, do not love blindly. Examine carefully to see if your married life would be happy or inharmonious and wretched. These questions were something that I thought was really helpful to me. Let these questions be raised. Will this union help me heavenward? Will it increase my love for God? And will it enlarge my sphere of usefulness in this life? If these reflections present no drawback, then in the fear of God, move forward. Let a young woman accept as a life companion only one who possesses pure manly traits of character, one who is diligent, aspiring, and honest, one who loves and fears God, page 47. And in looking at a wife, will she be one who will be patient and painstaking, page 46. Then the last step, hooray, engagement, commitment to marriage and a lifetime of ministry together, I want to include one of the keys to success there is a definite timeline toward marriage. Long engagements are not wise. I am sorry that you have entangled yourself in any courtship with Nellie A. In the first place, your anxiety upon this question is premature. Sound judgment and discretion will bid you wait for one or two years. But for you to select one to be in your mind and affections, that length of time would not be prudent for you or just to the one to whom you pay your address. You know, it's very important to spend some time getting to know a person, but you don't want to just draw out their affections for a long time. That causes a lot of physical temptation. You know, the more emotional intimacy you have, the more physical intimacy you long for. It's just the way God has created us. It's not evil. That was from Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery, and Divorce, page 19. And um, I think you all know the warning about breaking an engagement. Be very careful how you enter into conditional engagements, but better, far better, break the engagement before marriage than separate afterward as many do. Adventist Home, page 48. Um, it's important, I think, to just realize you've got to have a definite timeline. I knew somebody who was engaged, and she'd been engaged for like four years. She hardly ever saw the guy, and she even told me one time, well, you know, yeah, I'm engaged to him, but if you ever find anybody else that you think is a nice guy for me, you know, bring him on, come. It's like, that is not engagement, anyway. <laughs> so keys to success in step five, 
A solid, confident commitment based on knowledge of God, self, and the other person. If you are not confident in your commitment, then pull back and think about it. Alan, at one point in our engagement, said he needed to pull back and think about it. So I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. And we talked it all through, and everything was fine. But we needed to have that. He needed to be confident. And if I had just pressured him, it might have taken away his confidence. Um, Premarital counseling. This is crucial to be able to figure out any last-minute things that neither of you had noticed and none of your friends had noticed. Complete transparency. If you're going to marry this person... Do not keep any skeletons in the closet. Yeah, there's this kid I haven't told you about. He's five now. <laughs> Careful physical boundaries. You know, when you're engaged, there's, there's a strong tendency to just say, wow, you know, you're going to be mine in just two months. Keep those boundaries. Stay with other people. Don't go, up, go anywhere late at night. And prayer. It's, it's so crucial in every step. And surrender. You know, last but not least, I think there's just so much to be said for having a a complete surrender to the Lord. And that's the, the backbone and the foundation of everything that I'm saying tonight. You know, when, when I was dating Alan, um, we dated for four months while he was in Africa and I was in America. And during that time, we realized we we're going to have to have some time together. So we scraped together all the money we had between the two of us. And he found a good deal on a ticket for me to fly to Africa. He bought it from the travel agent in Africa. He mailed me the ticket. I got it. I was like, wow, I'm really going to go and see this guy. You know, we had seen each other, but the last time I'd seen him, we hadn't actually been dating. We had just been um, observing <laughs> each other. And, and as I, I was so excited, you know, and yet I was praying about it all. And I honestly, I had found myself to truly love him by that time and I had found this guy has such amazing character and our personalities mesh so well. We'd been reading through this book, Getting to Really Know Your Life Mate to Be by Bob and Cheryl Beal, B-I-E-H-L. It was a wonderful book and we just went through questions one by one. You know, all, all aspects of life, finances, family, what would we want to do with our lives spiritually, everything. It was a very thorough preparation. I felt like I know this guy so well and I felt that I was flying to Africa in order to fall in love with him. I already knew I was going to marry him. Now I needed to go and fall in love with him. Not that I didn't already love him. I loved him very deeply, but I needed to be with him in order to feel, okay, now we actually know each other much better. So I got to the airport in New York City. I got there a little bit late, but I'd been carrying the ticket folder in my hand. The night before, I'd gotten it out and checked, yep, there's the ticket folder, had it put in the pocket in my suitcase, then I carried it in my hand on the bus and ran to the ticket counter. I was like, okay, I know it's an international flight. Here I am. And I opened the ticket folder. It was empty. The ticket was gone. I was like, okay, hang on a second here. I grabbed the, the pocket. I went through everything in the pocket, pulled it all out, crammed it back in. I said, okay, I guess I'm going to have to buy a replacement ticket. The guy said, go down to that end of the counter. I go down there, and the guy said, no, no replacement ticket here. Never fly Alitalia. He said, if you don't have a ticket, you're not flying. I said, you've got to be kidding. He bought this in Africa. I, I can't replace it. He said, well, if you don't have a ticket, you're not going anywhere. Okay, so I started praying really hard. I went through everything in the suitcase. I went through everything in the other suitcase. I went through everything twice. I was praying. I called my friend whose house I was staying with. He called his neighbor who went down and searched his house. No ticket. Nothing. And I realized, you know, I've been holding that ticket folder and for how long in the bus? It could be anywhere in New York City by now. Oh, and I just, I was in agony. And then I came to the cross. I just realized, you know, 
the Lord, I've been praying to him and saying, Lord, you know where this ticket is? You know where it is? Please show me. So maybe he doesn't want me to go. And so I paused and I just knelt down on the airport floor and I prayed. I said, God, this belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. And if you don't want me to go to Africa, then I don't want to go. I just surrender this to you, Lord. I give it to you and whatever is your will, work out your will in my life. And at that point, I thought I need to go through that pocket again where the ticket had been. I've already gone through this pocket three times now, frantically. I've gone through everything in there. I pulled out everything again, and in my mind it's just going, it's not in here. I know it's not in here. I know it's not in here. This is stupid. And there was a map folded up in there. I'd already gone through the map, but this time I just grabbed the map and went flap, opened it, and the ticket fell off out on the floor. And now I really started crying. I grabbed the ticket, threw everything in the suitcase. I ran to the ticket agent sobbing. He said, can you still give me all the plane? He said, yes. He grabbed it. <laughs> he typed like crazy. He said, run. <laughs> I ran all the way to the plane. I got to that door. And the stewardess closed it behind me. I sat down in my chair and I just said, thank you, God. Not that I'm going to Africa. Thank you for the experience. Because now I know. I've handed this relationship to you. I've said, not mine. It's yours, Lord. And you've handed it back to me. I felt like Abraham, and he just handed Isaac to the altar. And here it came back. Wow, I am going to marry this guy. <laughs> okay, I didn't know that yet. <laughs> but I just, I knew that God was in charge. I knew that God had a plan and that God was sending me to Africa and not me sending myself. And that's what I, I just see as the overarching principle in everything here that I'm sharing tonight. God has a plan for you. And as you surrender to him, it's not going to look like my story. It's not going to look like Tim and Sonny's story. It's not going to look like anybody else's story because it'll be God and you. And that's the most beautiful thing about this. God has a plan for your life, whether it's being single or married. It's the most beautiful way, and it's what you would choose if you could see the end from the beginning the way that he does. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to surrender everything to you tonight. We thank you for your plan for our lives, that you're working out your will, and that we can truly say that it's not I but Christ. When you lead us, Lord, it's the best way. I pray for every person that listens to this message, Lord, that you will bring us to our knees that we may surrender everything to you and that you may work out your will in each one of our lives, that we may be in heaven and we may bring as many people as possible with us through our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.